Hello and welcome to Spotlight On. I'm your host, Lawrence Purrier. Today the spotlight is on writer Dimitri Ehrlich. I first became aware of Dimitri through his book Inside the Music, Conversations with Contemporary Musicians about Creativity, Spirituality, and Consciousness. In that book, Dimitri explored the influence spirituality has had on the lives and work of music artists, including Mick Jagger, Iggy Pop, Al Green, Philip Glass, and many, many others. As a songwriter, Dimitri has had hit songs around the world. He's written for television, print, and worked on many familiar advertising campaigns. I hope you enjoy our discussion. Yeah, where are you? I'm in New York City. I'm a block from uh, the spot where John Lennon lived and died. I can see the Dakota from my apartment window. I'm on 72nd Street in the Upper West Side near Central Park. Oh, wow. And uh, how is New York right now? Well, I just stood in the rain for two hours and 15 minutes to vote. Um, the lines were eight blocks long and we're eight days out from the election. So it was kind of amazing. Um, when I got into the polling, the lady said, by the way, how long did you have to wait? And I said, four years. <laughs> but um, <laughs> but um, the city is uh, doing better than it was in some ways. Like, you know, March, last March and April were pretty, it was pretty frightening time because we were losing like 400 people a day. Like. It was, you know, we were, it was just a slaughterhouse basically from COVID. Now, um, COVID is more under control in the city, but um, violent crime has really been spiking. There's been a lot of shootings and um, stabbings and just, you know, crime is kind of out of control. And also just, I've been in this apartment since 94, so 26 years um, in this neighborhood. And um, like when I walk around the neighborhood, probably, I don't know, 20 to 30% of the storefronts are empty. So it, it doesn't bode well. I mean, a part of that is COVID, part of that is Amazon, part of that is rising rents. There's a lot of different factors, but, you know, businesses are going out of, I mean, retail and, and, and restaurants, obviously bars are closed, gyms are closed. You know, a lot of it's the COVID, but um, the combination of the rent situation and the, um, the pandemic and other factors, you know, could, I, I used to, spend time in Detroit in the, in the nineties a lot. And I remember walking around Detroit and it's, it's not as bad as Detroit, obviously in this New York city, but I don't know. It's pretty, pretty ominous how much, like you just, it's amazing how much is out of business right now. Um, yeah. yeah. So, it's, so that's a little scary, but I will say when I got to the voting, you know, I, when I vote normally um, like in 2016, I walked in and, you know, you, you maybe wait five minutes and you walk in and vote for a presidential election and, and for, things like the mayors and smaller elections, it's, you know, there's nobody there. You can walk in and vote anytime. Um, but this, I was thinking, oh, you know, it's the middle of the day. It's a rainy day. We're eight days out. I saw the line. I couldn't believe it. And I was like, and my first thought was, you know what, I'm not going to, I don't have time. I'm not going to spend, I'm not going to, but then when I saw so many people there, I was like, you know what, these people are all doing it. It just, it was actually kind of a nice feeling in a weird, strange counterintuitive way, but everyone was standing there in the rain together. And we were all like, you know, exercising our right to vote in a, obviously a difficult, challenging situation in a very toxic, polarized moment. So um, it kind of made me feel good in the end. You know, we were, I was trying to, there was construction scaffolding. So I was doing some, some chin-ups waiting, trying to get my workout on while <laughs> trying That's to multitask. And, uh, That's funny. Listening well, to podcasts, of course. 
Well, I, I, you know, I lived in New York for about 20 years um, from the mid nineties till um, about 2016. So first of all, COVID really, I, I had just only this year kind of gotten over my extreme homesickness. <laughs> when I first moved out here, I was going back every month and I finally had to, after about six months of that, say, you know what, I, I need to, I was basically living in Seattle between trips to New York, you know? Mm-hmm. And um, so I got to the point where I was going just once or twice a year. But um, during like what you talked about during that peak of COVID, um, it was definitely tugging at me and hearing stories from friends out there and thinking about even in the positive, beautiful ways, like when New York gets quiet after a big snowstorm, you know, just anytime the city is different, it, it, yeah. it's always so alluring and interesting, but it's, it's really painful to, um, to hear some of those stories, but, but your, your particular instance from today is, is something I want to talk about for a second, because when I moved out here, I moved out here in August of 2016, so it was in the heat of, of the first Trump go-round. And um, what was amazing was I got here right before, um, not, the, not the presidential primary, but there were some local race primaries. And we have 100% vote by mail here. And I had never encountered that before, except you know in like those extreme cases where you can request an absentee ballot. Um, but when I got out here, one of the first pieces of mail I got was a voter kit. And it's a book that has profiles of all the candidates. Um, It has statements on all the issues, pros and cons and rebuttals written by like, you know, somebody from the University of Washington or some expert. And I was like, this is incredible. Like, (laughs) this is this is amazing. And then like five or 10 days after that, your ballot arrives in the mail. And you do your thing. And it's postage paid. And you voted. Um, it's incredibly powerful and um, so matter of fact, right? And as, and as I asked around with people here, they've been voting that way since like the early mid 2000s. And, um, you know, I don't necessarily hear a lot of stories about voter fraud or stolen elections out here. Um, but it's, it's uh, so to hear you talk about, I don't even know if I could vote in person here. I'm pretty sure there, there isn't in-person voting, but if there is, I, I wouldn't know how to do it. So it's such a strange um, you know, a uh, set of different ex- experiences we're having in the very same country, um, all long-winded sort of prologue to a question, which was, I don't remember being able to vote in advance in New York. So what's different now? I'm not sure because I've never contemplated it before, but I know that, um, I'm, and I'm not an expert on politics or civic, you know, civic institutions by any stretch of the imagination, but I know the military, for example, which is, you know, several million voters, always vote by mail. So all everyone in the army is doing remote, ba- you know, you're, unless you're happen to be on a base in your home state, but most of the military is not in their home state. Um, so, and there are some states that have been, I don't know the ones, but I think there's 12 or 13 that have had mail in or remote voting. And, and like New Jersey now is entirely, is entirely mail in um, the whole state is. So I don't really know. Um, I had never done this before. I'd never done early or mail and I've always just, you know, walked in. It's a block. It's on 71st Street. So I've always, it's funny, in 2016, um, we voted. And as soon as I walked out, I passed John Oliver. So I guess he lives in the neighborhood. I've seen him once or twice. And I was like, oh, that's a good omen. And then I had to get on a plane around four o'clock. And of course, everyone thought it would be going to be a landslide for Hillary. But I went to Miami because I was working that night on a on a TV show. Um and then it was on the flight, you know, 
where I didn't have internet for like a few hours, but like between the flight time, like six o'clock and like when I landed like nine o'clock, people were just calling me crying, but nothing was definite. And then it was, you know, it was depressing because, well, my Florida had gone Republican, but everyone on the shoot was from New York or LA because it was, it was a Disney uh, ABC TV show. Um, so it was like, everyone was just in like a state of like, you know, and I remember thinking then it's funny how time goes, but I was like, all right, two years, the midterms, four years, like, you know, that's all you can think is like, all right, I'm going to have to wait four years. Where did you live in New York, by the way? Uh, well, over the course of that time, a bunch of different places. I, I started, uh, when I first moved there, I moved to the corner of Clinton and Delancey Street. And then I was on um, East 11th between 1st and 2nd. That was sort of until about 2000. And I always tell people much different Lower East Side, you know, no, there weren't well, fresh restaurant, French restaurants and gastro uh, <laughs> bistros but, and stuff. Although it's funny because like, I mean, now I'm going to sound like an old man, but so you came to New York in the 90s. Yeah. So like, I remember Clinton and Essex in the 70s and the 80s. I started, so I, I, bit, I grew up in New Jersey in a small town where I, but I was, my dad had an apartment in the city since before I was born. So we always had a place in the city on the poor side and our, and our, where I grew up in New Jersey is a mile away. I could walk or bike. It's just across the George Washington bridge. So even as a kid, like I would walk into the city across the bridge and, you know, these days I can use, it's like, a, you know, six from where I am to the, across to my parents' house. They're still living there. They're 89 and 90. They still live in the town. Um, so it's like, you know, 15, 15 minute drive or whatever um, from the Upper West Side. But I remember, so I started coming to Soho in the 70s because I was into art and painting. My dad would take me to the galleries. And I started, when I was in high school, I started going to college at the new school. Oh, wow. Like I combined my freshman year with my, uh, in college with my senior. So that was 83. And I mean, so I remember the Lower East Side in 83. And, and we had an aunt who lived on Pitt Street that I used to visit. And it was just like, you know, body. It was junkies and like, yeah. So by the time you got here in the 90s, it was already changed. It started changing like mid 90s. It started getting better. Yeah, um, I got the tail end of stepping yeah. over on junkies, like maybe yeah. a year of that. Yeah. 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 But like in the 80s, I mean, it was like when I started going to school, like, I mean, I saw stuff like people getting stabbed. Like I, I saw, you know, gun, but my, my friends were actually robbed at gunpoint in right outside of my apartment. When we moved here. Another friend of mine was shot on Columbus Avenue. Like, so I, I, I kind of, you know, still have those memories. And I remember always telling people, you know, this is not an inexorable process, like gentrification. So the main complaint has been like, oh, I miss the nostalgia for dirty old New York. Everyone's like, it's become a playground for the rich, blah, blah, blah. But I always say, well, first of all, it was really scary. <laughs> I mean, it was fun, but it was, you know, I was a teenager, but it was, I remember buying, you know, it was like an open air drug market in Union Square yeah. Park. And, you know, there's fun and exciting, but also constant threat and danger. And also it's not inexorable. Like it's going to come back. It's cycles. It's not like, it's not just going to keep getting nicer and cleaner and richer and more expensive. It's going to break it. And we're maybe seeing that now who knows what will happen. But, um, you know, if you ever read Luke Sant's book, um, what's it called? Um, I actually wrote a song. Based low on life. That. Yeah. Low life. Yeah. yeah. You know, he talks about, if you read that book, so it goes kind of like through, I forget, it starts in the early 1800s and you see the sort of cycles of like boom and bust, boom and bust, and maybe it's 30, 40 years and it changes. So it's not like things were bad in the 60s and 70s and now they just kept getting better forever. Like that's a very naive and ahistorical view of, of urban life. And, you know, crime dropped, nobody really knows why around America in the 90s, it just kind of started going down and now it's going up. But like, if you read, uh, Barbara Tuckman, A Distant Mirror, A Calamitous History of the 14th Century. 14th Century France was unbelievably violent. And they've done excavations like 
the percentage of people who died in 14th century rural France from having their head cracked in by with a blunt object trauma was like, you know, you had like a probably 30% chance of having your head cracked open because people would be like, it's Sunday. There's no football to watch. Let's just go maraud and, you know, destroy the next village. <laughs> so, you know, things are generally speaking, there's less war and violence than there was. Of course, there are some, you know, cataclysmic possibilities with thermonuclear holocaust that didn't exist then. But um, anyway, just as a student of history, I always kind of like to zoom out and be like, first of all, you know, nothing is forever. Things are going to get better and worse and better and worse. We'll have solutions to problems that will cause other problems. And, you know, life is, it's, it's not like you're ever going to get to a, the gated community mentality of like, I'm in total safety. Um, but, you know, I, anyway, so I've always, I have like, I'm obsessed with New York in the seventies and eighties, I guess, cause that was my youth and my childhood. And I have such a, I, you know, the feeling of New York when it was like, you know, John Belushi and John Lennon were hanging out down in the mud club and like Andy Warhol and that kind of, you know, and my first job out of, of uh, college was working at the last Warhol factory and I, he, Warhol had just died, but his, his weights were still out and his, you know, paintings weren't even framed and like, you know, people who, if you're, if you know the Warhol kind of factory superstars, like Bridget Berlin was sitting behind the counter answering the phones when I got there and Fred Hughes and Vincent Fremont, which these made not be names that everyone knows, but these were the people who built the Andy Warhol factory. They were still there. And so I kind of got the last glimpse of that. And I realize now when I, I have such nostalgia for a world that I feel is like vanquished and I miss, but I realized like I actually, you know, I was 21 or 22, but I actually met those people and I was there and I, you know, a lot of like Fab Five Freddy and all that. I kind of like got my, I saw that world a little bit. I sort of saw the, you know, the, the Tama Janowitz and Ishmael Merchant and those, like I sort of saw the, you know, the last glimpse of that Warhol, New York kind of, I guess it was in the 80, I started working there in 88 at interview. Um, November 88 was my first, uh, my first issue. So I sort of have this yearning for something that I feel like is a lost world, but I actually was sort of got the last gas, gasp and few, you know, I did experience a little bit of it. Um, but also I appreciate now I have a five-year-old son and I'm like, you know, I appreciate that, you know, there's not constant gunfire. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, it's funny that, that you're framing it that way because I, I feel very similar in a different context, which is, you know, my, my interest was a lot of the, um, the, the sort of no wave downtown music scene. So John Zorn, you know, Bill Laswell, all those cast of characters and sort of coming in even from, I, I grew up in Connecticut and, you know, taking the train down in the, the early nineties to go to shows at the original knitting factory or to go to the kitchen or whatever it was to, it's the very same thing. By the time I got there and sort of planted myself down, there were still remnants of that, right? The old knitting factory had maybe had another year or so left in it or had just moved to, to Houston street. Um, tonic opened up, you know, there was, there was still stuff going on, but it was that sense of like very much of a, bridge era if you will or like a transitional time but the the things that you talk about in particular um you're filling in a gap for me so i have to thank you which is um how you went from those early interests into the world of hip-hop and now i see fairly clearly that those were in a way one and the same or, or they the art world and the early hip-hop world were were somewhat overlap weren't they or or you know i think of somebody like ramblesey or um can you talk a little bit about that era and that sort of so my my actually my first boss at interview was Paige powell and she gave uh, her she was dated or was one of the girlfriends of i'm not sure exactly how exclusive the relationship was but jean-michel basquiat was her 
boyfriend and she did Basquiat's first art show that he ever had in New York in her apartment. She just opened up the apartment. And so Basquiat, you know, and, and also my first real editorial boss was Glenn O'Brien who, who had Glenn O'Brien's TV party. And he was, you know, he was Glenn O'Brien through people like Basquiat. He did a movie called downtown 81 with Basquiat in it. And um, that scene was, you know, Debbie Harry, Fab Five Freddy. It was like Fab Five Freddy and sort of like hip hop started coming downtown and like, the Mud Club, and that there was there was a um, danceteria in the early '80s, late '70s, early '80s. There was kind of like this fusion of downtown indie new wave scene with with hip hop, and that's not actually how I got into it. What happened was I my relationship to hip hop really honestly started, I guess, when um, it's funny. I was born in Englewood Hospital, and Englewood is is the home of Sugar Hill Records. Um, and when, when um, Sugar Hill Gang came out, you know, me and my friends all kind of like, you know, tried to like, we just sort of fell in love with that early era of hip hop. And, and it's another strange coincidence is the guy who produced my first record as an artist, the first album that I made was produced by J.B. Moore. J.B. Moore is one of the co-writers of Curtis Blow, The Breaks. He wrote The Breaks and Basketball for Curtis Blow. And then he did a bunch of other early uh, full force these are names that unless you're really into like old school, like R&B and hip hop, you might not know full force, but um, you know, it was kind of like that scene with Grandmaster Flash and yeah, there was graffiti, Ram LZ and there was, there was um, Lee Quinone. There's a whole, it's funny. So Glenn O'Brien in a way was, an, was also like this over, he was a figure who was connected to a lot of these things. Like he dated Grace Jones. He created, I think it was called Glenn O'Brien's TV, TV party, which was a cable show where he had, you know, he'd have like Richard Hell on it and he'd have like early rappers and he'd have like George Clinton. And it was like, it was black music and white um, art, downtown edgy kind of like art and new wave and punk all fusing and overlapping. And so Glenn, who had been an editor of Interview in Rolling Stone, um, he was my first boss as a writer. Paige hired me first at Interview. And then Glenn was my first boss when I became like an editorial um, I think my first title associate editor or whatever editorial, my, my first job writing, my first byline, Glenn gave me my first assignments. Um, anyway, um, but the way I really got into hip hop, the truth was I, so I was really into music growing up. Um, my father was in a, my father was in a swing band. I was raised with music since I was a kid um, and had been playing and writing songs since I was 11 or 12 years old. And then, so I grew up playing, you know, professionally playing with a band and, um, and like, you know, I played at all those like Ludlow Street Cafe and on Houston Street, like you were mentioning um, Tonic and um, the original Knitting Factory. So there was like AKA and all these, I can't even remember, MK, like I played Nels. I played at all these, you know, like they're all, they're all gone, but these clubs and yeah. bars, the Lower, lower East Side. Um, and I used to live down there too, before I moved up to the Upper West Side. I lived, all my apartments were down in the Lower East Side or, or East Village, Chinatown. Um, but so I was really into music, but the music I was into was definitely much more like, you know, classic rock or like Elvis Costello, Talking Heads. It was more like white kind of. And then my brother in 1985 or six, he came, he came home and gave me a cassette. And I, I remember the moment, like it was yesterday sitting, I was sitting in a car, popped in the cassette and it was Boogie Down Productions and mm -hmm. Eric B and Rakim. And I just was like sitting there being like, it just changed. I was like, there's something it was like a light switch went off where I was like, it was a completely watershed moment in my life where I was like, this 
is it. This is like, so, and then I became, so from around 86, I just got so into it. And I remember actually meeting Karis one on the street once, but this was before I was really a writer. I, I think I was working an interview, but I just stopped him. And at that point, probably not that many like white kids knew who he was or were stopping on the street. There's like, you know, 87, 88, he had like independent singles out, I guess with Boogie Down Productions. But, um, and then I, I think I got him on the cover. We did a cover of inter of interview magazine with a bunch of people that I got to, you know, interview him for. And this was, yeah, like 89 or 89 or 90. Um, and then through Glenn got to interview, you know, NWA around that time. And so I was sort of just very enthusiastic about, about that era. So I kind of got really into rap, I guess, like late eighties, 86, 87, 88, 89, 90, that era. And eventually, you know, wrote a book about that period. And it's my brother and I just kind of collated all our interviews. Um, so it was kind of like, yeah, there was a natural fusion of, it was, it had happened a little bit earlier really with, I think, I think it's Blondie, um, Rhapsody was kind of the first recorded like fusion where it was like, you know, she, she name checks or Fat Five Freddy's on the record. Um, and, and there is sort of like the, the real fusion from CBGBs and, sort of mud club and danceteria and that lower that downtown kind of club new wave scene that started mixing with socially and aesthetically and um and in terms of creative output sort of mixing in the gallery scene and i think Basquiat was also at the center of that being you know kind of like a young black kid on the streets and and then suddenly collaborating with andy warhol and you know sort of it was that was the collaboration between warhol and Basquiat. it kind of also epitomizes that interesting exciting fusion of like different worlds in New York city. Um, and in some ways I feel like that, that is like a, what's the, there's a term for like a star that explodes and keeps radiating laid out, but it's like a quasar or whatever the word is that, you know, I think we're still the shards of that kind of collision are still, we're st are still informing our society in a lot of ways from music in Nashville, which is now like emulating R and B and hip hop phrasing to, you know, pop music of all different kinds. There's still like kind of this exciting, and it really goes back, I mean, obviously you can go back to, you know, the 1940s and 50s with Irish Celtic kind of melodies and African rhythms from Bo Diddley. And, you know, there's, so I think that that tension between European and African music and rhythmic elements has always, has always been there in pop, pop music, but it, it takes on different life form and different eras. Yeah, I think that, that that's an interesting through line to, um, you know, even the, uh, you know, we, we both from reading your bio we've shared some experiences with uh with keith richards and you know his work with some of the um with some of the the nyabingi music in jamaica and the old spirituals and the um you know it, having conversation with him or just in the in the some of the song structures themselves you know it's a lot of even like scottish hymns and you know old uh western and northern northern european um church music and those melodies that that sort of made their way you know, into the Caribbean through the mixture of the the slave trade and what have you, um, and how that all interweaved, and whether it was the the mission work or just the exposure to the to the church culture, um, it's amazing how how those things. Um, uh, it's not it's not a straight line, you know, the 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 way they interweave and the way the cultures speak to each other, even when individual people aren't, um, their cultures are speaking to each other and fusing that way. I didn't realize you were with interview, but I, I have to ask, you know, in so much as I, I talk to a lot of people who 
Um, if there's a theme to what I do here, it's that I talk to a lot of people who um, have disparate ways basically of making their life and their livelihood around the arts and around music and entertainment. And if I were to be introduced to you in a social function, how would a, how would a mutual friend refer to you? What, who would they say you are? What would they say you do? Or, or how, and how do you professionally self-identify? Uh, I, the simple way is usually as writer, but it, that's, which is an ambiguous term because, you know, depending on the context, and I have actually different like bios that I use for different where I have like a music songwriter bio, music production songwriting. Um, I have, and I would normally say I'm a songwriter first more, not because the bulk of my income comes from that every year. It depends year to year. Um, some years, you know, it's everything's the music industry and, and every, in general, all the work I do is so unpredictable in terms of income. I have no, I have not had, you know, a guaranteed income for 20 years. I haven't had a job for 20 years that was, you know, in an office and with any guaranteed income, but so I usually say songwriter just because that's what I enjoy most doing. And that's probably the thing I would do. But you know, it's funny when I first started interview magazine, um, I remember this cause I got hired. I didn't, so I graduated from actually Wesley, you, you grew up in Connecticut. So I went to Wesleyan after mm -hmm. new school. Where in, where in Connecticut were you from? I was from Hamden, Hamden outside okay. of New Haven. Yeah. Okay. So I used to, uh, so I was in Middletown. Was the yeah. I so played I, in the I, student center there a couple times with, uh, <laughs> with bands. Yeah. Uh, yeah, me too. Me too. Actually, the first guy, it's funny, the first guy I ever jammed with um, at Wesleyan uh, was Stephen Schwartz, who became, I think, he, Hedwig in the Angry Inch. Um, oh, nice. But anyway, so I. Were you, in um, the were you in the ethnomusicology program there? I know they have a great no, they had music awesome program. gamelan. Yeah. That, no, I just was playing music and, you know. Um, I did study guitar and I studied hymnody actually speaking of the Scottish hymns. I took a course with on hymnody. Um, but um, so I graduated in Wesley in, in 87 and I was looking for work and I was like, you know, it's funny, you know, I can look at my life. It's like those holographic things where you can flip back and forth and see two opposite things. Sometimes I look at my life and I'm like, I'm talking about my career, not my life as a human being, but I can look at my life and be like, you know, proud of myself and feel like I'm, sort of successful in one sense in that like, you know, I've, I've, I'm a Grammy. I'm sorry, not a Grammy. Not yet. Not thank you, Grammy. I don't know that the Emmy nominated TV producer and writer, you know, I've published two books. I, um, whatever I was multi-platinum songwriting, you know, blah, blah, blah. Or I published in the New York times and blah, blah, blah. Or I could also, sometimes I look, it's very easy for me to flip also and look at myself as kind of like not a complete failure, but, it's a thin line sometimes where I can flip back and forth and look at myself, I guess maybe because my aspirations are high, but I'm like, my God, I'm really a failure. Like one of the guys that I graduated from Wesleyan with created uh, Mad Men. So sometimes, or, you know, I didn't graduate with him, but um, Lin-Manuel Miranda, you know, he graduated from Wesleyan. So sometimes I look at my life compared to other peers of mine and I'm like, I guess I'm really a loser. What am I doing with my life? You know, it's, I don't know. That might be a good thing in a way because it keeps me very ambitious it, or, I don't want to say it keeps me humble because to say, to say one is humble is sort of like proof that you're not humble. Like I've won the award for being humble, but hungry or dissatisfied, I guess, you know, humble is a, a euphemism for dissatisfied. I, I'm, I don't feel like I'm, I don't feel like I'm anywhere near where I want to be. Not that I deserve to be, because I actually feel like I've had more success than I deserve in terms of my talent. I don't think that I'm super talented, but I am very enthusiastic and hardworking. And I definitely, um, 
I don't even consider it work because I really enjoy it, but I really put in energy and time and I pour in, I pour in my life force to my, to my, what I do. I won't even call it work as more play, but to answer your question. So when I was at interview and I first got hired, I answered a job. It's funny. So I graduated from Wesleyan. I went back home to live with my parents in New Jersey and I would wake up with my face and the bed covered in, in job clippings that my father would cut out of the New York times being like, get a job boy. And in his defense, you know, he, he, he did pay for me to go to Wesleyan. So that was, a, I didn't graduate with college debt, but after that, I'm, you know, after I, I'm completely self-made in terms of what I've achieved in my life financially and my, you know, and my, I've earned everything and I've done everything myself after that. So I don't blame him for, you know, cutting out the New York times, but I was like, I couldn't breathe because I was like, I'm inhaling New York Times job clippings and also just pressure. <laughs> I was like, I don't know what to do. I'm, you know, I was 21 years old. I'm like, and I, then he gave me an ad. I said, interview, it was literally in the New York Times. It said, interview magazine, advertising assistant. I didn't know what that meant. I thought that meant creating advertising because I was like, oh, I, in my mind, in my uneducated 21-year-old mind, I just thought the advertising world was like, you know, kind of creative and you write ads or whatever. So I took out this, I, I responded to the ad and I got this job working in the last Warhol factory hired by Paige Powell. And I was basically getting cappuccinos for her and making lunch appointments for her. Um, but it was really cool. Cause she'd be like, <laughs> one of my, one of my first weeks at work uh, interview, she said, can you call this number of people? And we want to ask them if they'll be videotaped uh, if they'll do a little interview because it was interviews, maybe 15th anniversary or whatever. I don't know. It was founded in 1969. So it was the 20th anniversary issue so i called christopher walken and i actually got a call from christopher walken i can't i won't try to imitate him but he was like the, the video crew showed up at his apartment to, and he's like dimitri i was like tell page this is a total bullshit situation basically he thought that they were going to interview him for interview and he didn't want to give a quote about the magazine but anyway so I'm, <laughs> i was working there and but i realized i was starting i still have the i was writing every day even at lunchtime even when i wasn't being paid to write I was writing and I'm still doing it to this day. Like I, I did a thing last, I wrote something last night about, I found out that the cantor in the synagogue where I was bar misfood, he died last night or this couple of weeks ago at the age of 92. And I found out his whole story as Holocaust survivor. And I wrote this long thing and I, and I realized, you know, they say a writer writes. So this is a long way to answer saying, I guess I'm a writer because I have this compulsion to write. And a lot of the things that have happened in my life, like, when my son was born five years ago, um, actually his birthday's coming up in November, so it was six years ago, I was in the hospital bed laying you know, ne next to his mother and I just started writing about the experience and passing a homeless guy and a guy, it was November and he was freezing, asking for money, whatever. And I just started posting it to Facebook and then somehow Huffington Post saw that and I wound up getting, you know, writing a column about fatherhood called The Daddy Diaries and I was, it just, it wasn't that I was trying to write a thing about child uh, being a dad or trying to pitch it. It just happened. And the same thing sort of happened at interview and it happened for me at MTV too, where um, my transition from being an advertising to being an editorial job happened because of that. Cause I wasn't angling. I didn't know what it was. I just was writing and like, it sort of got noticed that I was doing that work. And at MTV, I, same thing happened. I got hired for a weird job. I didn't understand in the off air creative department, which was really like an in-house agency writing ads for, um, MTV. And then one day on a Friday afternoon, I was running, I was doing down the elevator with Judy McGrath, who was the president of MTV at the time. And she just said, Oh, what are you doing this weekend? And I said, I'm going to this Kung Fu exhibition. And by the way, you know, you guys should do something on Kung Fu and breakdancing because there's interesting correlations between the movements of Kung Fu and the breakdancing. And then I came in on Monday and I got a call saying, would you like to have your own show on MTV? 
and that happened. And so I left that and it was the same thing that I transitioned from advertising to editorial at, at interview and at MTV. And both of them happened, not because I was like, Hey, here's an idea. Let me pitch you on. Like, it was just kind of like a side effect of being like my cup runneth over with like my, you know, a natural enthusiasm, I think for or commitment to, you know, the stuff that makes life interesting. And, and I feel like a lot of people, then now I sound like an old man, like get off my porch kids, but a lot of people these <laughs> days, it's like they're, the focus is so much on success instead of greatness or trying to do something really good. And, you know, instead of worrying, like if you just show up and work your ass off, you will be noticed as opposed to like, you know, being tactical about like climbing the ladder. And of course it's good to be tactical when you get the opportunity, but um, it's also much more important because you never know what's going to happen in the world and things have, you know, like for in my particular career. So like as a songwriter, I, there were years when I was making more than 10 times more than I'm making now from, from music, but, you know, streaming came along and, you know, it's there's adaptation. It's been, it's become harder to get, you know, there's no album sales anymore, blah, blah, blah. So as a result, it kind of also the upside of all that is like, it makes you realize, why am I doing this? Why am I, you know, what am I doing this for? Because I could probably make more money right now. <laughs> like, of course, it's like kind of like writing screenplays. You never know. You're still investing in, you know, but sometimes, you know, I'll get my checks from ASCAP or whatever. I'll be like, how much money, do, you know, I could make whatever, a couple thousand dollars in one day writing an ad. And, you know, I've had probably, I don't, I've lost track, but let's say over a hundred songs have been recorded that I've written. And when I get my statements, so I've, I get my ASCAP statements and I have more than a hundred songs are being played on the radio or TV somewhere in the world um, that I wrote all or part of. And then most of those things are, are fractions of pennies or like, you know, you made a dollar this year, you made $15, you made $10, you made a dollar 25, you, you know, a few of them, maybe two or three of them are making any significant amount of money that matters. Um, but most of them are not because if it's not a big single, it's like the, the market has become, there's only you know, 10 artists or 20 artists in the pop music world who, who don't write their own songs, who accept outside songs like the, you know, Beyonce, Maroon 5, Britney, whatever. The, the, there's only a couple, the Ariana Grandes of this world that were if you, were, you, you could really make serious money. And then there's like, you know, another level down that you can make some money. But then when you're looking at like, see Spotify viral charts, like it's really hard to make a significant living in music right now, um, unless you're the producer, that's different if you own the master. But as a songwriter, if you don't own the master recording um, is, and generally a lot of the songs that people write in the professional music writing world, there's three or four writers. And then sometimes the artist wants to take a big chunk of that. So you're writing, maybe you're dividing the check five ways, you know, my publisher's taking whatever percent of my share. Um, so anyway, I say all that by way of saying, there's a long answer to your question of how I identify myself. I say songwriter, but oftentimes the amount of the share of my income maybe is 20% or 30% of my income I'm making from music in a year. Maybe it used to be 20, 30% was from magazines and editorial writing. That's really come down because it's the same, you know, the digital, the digital revolution has also really crushed writing uh, for magazines yeah. and journalism. And then I used to make maybe 30 or 40% from TV. Um, that's slowed down. I don't really know why I've just the last few years, just it's, I don't know. Just see, I never really pursued, anything except music. So like, I just would sit at home and the phone would ring and I'd get work to do advertising or TV or whatever. And that's really slowed down. Pretty much everything has slowed down even worse than in the 2008 um, economic 
uh, calamity. For some reason, I don't know if it's that I've just I'm not good anymore at my job or what <laughs> what it is. But 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 work has been slow. So I, you know, I don't sit around on the couch. Though I put all that energy in the music writing, music production, which is mostly on spec. I'll occasionally like I, I'm doing a job this week for a client where we're getting paid up front, and I have a couple little jobs where I get paid. But most of the time, I'm writing songs to pitch, which is a really um, tough business. But so anyway, along the long, the short answer is pe- people would probably introduce me either as a writer or songwriter, or sometimes as a, you know, creative director or copywriter. But it's funny, like when I used to, when I was pursuing my artist career, and I'd get press about my music, they would be like, hip hop journalist, um, Dimitri Alex, you know, can also sing or like, you know, like, at that time, it was like, I was more known. I mean, at that time, I was writing for Rolling Stone, Spin, Details, New York, The New York Times. Like, I was writing in one month, I'd have 12 different magazines. I was like really um, writing a lot for magazines. And I just stopped really doing it because the money's no good. Like, it's just too hard to, unless you're writing for the New Yorker where that you could make like $3 a word and, you know, but that's not easy. It's not easy to get New Yorker assignments and you can't bang those out either. Those take months, you know, if you're doing a 20,000 word articles, it's like writing a mini book. Um, So, um, I guess the answer at a cocktail party, if I met you, I'd probably say I'm a writer. And then, then if people say, what kind of writing I usually say, well, I do, I write about music. Almost everything I've done has been music related. So I, a lot of the TV shows have been music related. The music, the journalism has been music related journalism and the, and obviously songwriting is music related. I have done some writing about, you know, fashion and um, TV and film and like pop culture stuff. And occasionally I get hired to do advertising. Like I'm working now um, on some advertising work. Um, some of it's for uh, a jewelry br- brand. Some of it's for a really big multi-billion dollar luxury hotel real estate thing. So sometimes like, you know, I don't turn down work ever, but I don't really pursue work ever. <laughs> like I just somehow have been able to, I've been like an octopus on the couch, like in Krill has been like floating into my, whatever the octopus's mouth is called. Um, so I've been fortunate enough to sort of somehow float along making a living do what I really enjoy and and also have a balanced life where it's funny when I was really young, like seven or eight, I, I had this weird thought when I was a kid, which is strange for a child. But I remember thinking when I'm old enough to have a kid, I want to be retired and be able to like spend my time with my, my child. And that basically came true. It's not that I don't work at all, but I like I can pick him up or take him to school. I can you know, play with them and, you know, a few hours in the daytime. I don't have to, I'm not in an office. I do have my to-do list and I've got a, like, I may be working tonight till 10 or 11 as opposed to having a nine to five, but I can sort of, you know, structure my day how I want to. And more importantly to me, um, I've been able to make sure that I have time to exercise and meditate every day. And I've, so my priorities in life are not like, like if you said I can get you a job right now and you can make $400,000 a year, um, like I actually got a call to go interview for, um, for Vice when they were starting Vice Television and they were like a creative director job. And I just was like, you know what? I, and I've had a bunch of these, you know, I, and I was like, I'm very, thank you. I'd love to contribute, but I don't really want to be in an office at one in the morning anymore on it. You know, like I did that it, when I was at interview, it was like that, you know, when I was young, I was 21, 22, 20, you know, be like, on your birthday or on Christmas or on whatever, and you're there at two o'clock in the morning and it's fun. You're closing a magazine. It's an awesome feeling. And, and magazines are really fun because the issue comes out and everyone's proud. Even though you've worked on it, you still get the new issue and it's great. But, you know, I don't, 
I, I don't want to live like I want to have balance in my life and be able to rest and, and I want to age well and I want to live well. Cause I was old when I became a father, I was 49. So I'm 54 now. And so I really, in addition to all my writing creative stuff, like Buddhism and martial arts are, have also been, you know, really central parts of my life. And, and, and I, you know, I've been sort of trained and I have trained myself to, to think about what will be of use to me when I die, what will be of value to me when I die. And obviously all this stuff we've been talking about, about culture and career means nothing. So I also try to make sure I have time to invest both in a focused, specific meditative way, formal way, as well as throughout the day to, you know, try to influence my mind in terms of, you know, compassion, wisdom, and um, more enduring, more valuable priorities in life. And then the martial arts thing, I guess, is not as meaningful. I, one of my teachers used to say, if all you do is train to hurt other people, then when you get old, you'll have nothing to show for it. But he also used to say, you know, if you have, you have, if you had one car for your life, think of how you would treat that car, how you would take care of it and change the oil, you know, and that's what it is with your body. So it's not that you're going to live forever, but we should try to, you know, be proactive in our approach to wellness. And some of the meditation is like that too, though, in the context of Buddhism, it's not just to have a long life and be healthy for its own sake, but also so that we're not, you know, if you're sick all the time, then you can't really focus on meditation because you're distracted by your own suffering. So it's important to like have a healthy mind and body for a number of reasons, both for obvious practical reasons, but also for more long-term, bigger, expansive spiritual reasons, because we can't really, you know, if we're completely consumed with being sick, then we can't really help ourselves or others. So anyway, that was a really long way, winded way of saying that I guess a writer, the answer would be if, if you met me in a social context, I'd probably say writer, but writing is really, wrapped around music and so music it's funny today my son was asked um for school to differentiate between want and need so he was going through what are what are our wants and needs and he was saying you know we we need food we need and i kind of piped up like need music and maybe that's a want but for me it's more of like it i don't know i think that's also a nourishing thing that is important like our lives would be really not emptiness not meaningless but without having time to meditate and have music. I used to call it the three M's, like music, martial arts, and meditation um, are the kind of three cores of what I do. So that's not really, I've never put, wanted to make a career out of meditation or Buddhism or martial arts. So I have recently gotten hired. And before the pandemic, I started teaching at this um, MMA school here for the last maybe couple of years before the pandemic. And it's like, I never really wanted to take the thing that I love that I did for pure reasons to, and turn it into like running my own school. And then I, you know, in, intermittently once in a while, like have been asked to teach meditation classes, but I never charge for that. And I, you know, I don't really want to confuse and conflate things and the motivation to make that a, a business venture because that's a, that's a really different thing for me. And, you know, you just don't want to, it's like, I don't know. I, people do run martial arts schools obviously as businesses and they, it becomes basically like childcare for kids. And then they, you know, you might have one or two people who are real fighters, but mostly you're teaching women who want to lose weight or whatever, men or women who want to lose weight and kids, you're taking care of them. And I used to really look down my nose at that, but now I'm having done it for a little while. I don't run the school, but the guy who's running the school is probably making 20,000 a month. And I was making like, you know, $20 an hour. So it was like, <laughs> for me, it was like, there's almost no point in doing it, but it's just like, well, it's forcing me to work out. You know, it's forcing me to work out hard a couple times a day. Um, so I did it for that. And also it helped me a little because when you're teaching, you're 
thinking about and answering questions and it forces you. I never felt qualified and I never felt anywhere near like, so I've been doing studying meditation and Buddhism for about 30 something years. And I started doing martial arts in 83. So um, whatever that is, 37 years, I've been training pretty much every day, but I still never consider myself a master in any way. Cause I, both because I really had great teachers. I've really studied under like really great teachers. And also I just don't, I don't think that I'm a master because I feel like if you're a master, then it suffuses everything you do the way you, like I used to watch my teacher, the way he would write would be, you could see the movement. Every single thing was an expression of mastery. Um, but anyway, so I don't consider my, I don't, wouldn't put those things in the career bucket, but, um, but yeah, probably writer would be the one word answer. Yeah. At the risk of knowing the answer before asking the question, because I don't want to make any assumptions when you described, um, sort of your approach to career and how, I don't know, I, I, the way, some of the things I heard or the words I heard were um, maybe like sort of a non-aggression um, about career. Can your approach to career be separated from your practice? Because they sound very much like one, the mindset from one infuses the approach to the other. Well, I try to... Um this is what my teacher taught me is like motivation is everything. So setting the motivation, like there are neutral activities. This, this may be going too deep in the weeds about Buddhism, but like from a karmic point of view, there are neutral activities, which most of what we do is neutral. Like going to the store to buy bread is neutral. You know, the only negative things are things that harm yourself or someone else and positive things are things that actively help. So since most of what we do in the day is neutral, if we set our motivation in the morning to think, my motivation today is to really be of maximum helpfulness to as many living things as I can. Then as many times throughout the day to remember that motivation, it seems odd, but you can actually have a positive effect just doing something like writing a magazine article. If your motivation is not your own personal greed, like if I'm thinking all I want to do is climb up the ladder. Like I remember once this was years ago, I was walking through central park and those, some guys had, you know, the stick with a pen in it, picking up paper. And they were like, what's this? And it was Martha Stewart's, they were like, is that Martha Stewart? And they threw it out. And I, after they left, I went and picked it up. And it was Martha Stewart. It was her like to-do list. It was her notes. And I was writing for the New Yorker at the time. I had just gotten the first assignment. I was like, this would be a killer New Yorker article. To I found Martha Stewart. And it was, actually said fire some people. And it was like kind of exposed her. As, and I called my teacher and I said, you know, I found these things. This would really help me in my career probably. And he said, no, don't do it. Because if you do something that hurts someone else to, you know, you got to look at the long-term effects and results. And if you're, if you let your ambition be cruel, it's fine to be, you know, I wouldn't say non-aggressive. I've actually always thought of it more as like water. So water will find it's, it's not that water is aggressive or non-aggressive, but water will, will find, it will just, you can't really stop a leak. <laughs> it'll, it'll, it'll find its way. Like, it, you know, water will come down and just kind of, so I try to be more like that, just, you know, effusive and joyfully persevering with a, you know, maybe call two or three times, but after that you don't become call 15 times. It's like two, you know, or even calling five times is probably, but follow up and, and show up and be enthusiastic. But, um, but not only, but thinking more like there's a great book about screenwriting by Thomas Lennon, who's a really funny actor from Reno 911. So most of the screenwriting books are like, you know, the three stories and the three, whatever three say, but his, one of the things in his book that I loved, he said, and this applies to almost everything. Your job is to make, your boss's job easier and to make your boss look good. If you think I'm going to make, or whoever you're pitching to, like in Hollywood, 
if you constantly think I'm going to make this person I'm dealing with make their life easier and I'm going to make them feel good, instead of thinking I'm going to make myself good and I'm going to claim the credit and I'm going to aggrandize myself, somehow in the long run, people are going to look around and be like, that guy was funny or made me feel good or whatever. You're going to, it's like, you know, instead of trampling over other people and, and clambering over, there's too much of that anyway. It's like the metaphor I always say is it's like, let's say there's a beautiful woman at the bar. Every guy is going up there and trying to like, you know, instead, instead of being like, you got to become magnetic yourself. And in order to draw like good things into your life, it's not about just like trampling everyone else to get there. It's also creating a kind of a vacuum and the way you create a vacuum of making positive things happen in your life and making success happen is, you know, of course, yes, doing the work and, you know, having the talent, skill and hard work, of course, but by having the mindset of like, I really am here to, it's, it's funny when I, when I was writing the first book that I wrote about music and spirituality, I interviewed my, my teacher, Gallic Rinpoche about that. And, oh no, before the book, sorry, I was writing a piece for the New York times about um, musicians and Tibetan Buddhism and how a lot of musicians were getting into Tibetan Buddhism and supporting Tibet as a cause. And I said, it's funny that um, all these musicians and rock stars are, are getting into Tibetan Buddhism because you know, there's a widely held view that most rock stars are kind of narcissistic and, and being a rock star is like kind of a megalomaniacal pursuit. It's like sort of like trying to be president or something like it's, it's not like a humble, you know, it's not an antidote to ego to be on stage with 30,000 people screaming your name. <laughs> but if you think of like, are, you know, David Lee Roth or Gene Simmons or whatever, typical rock stars, it's not like you're like, that's a humble guy. Um, so he said, no, I don't think of it that way. I think of it as I think of music as a service and I think of people who go and buy those tickets or pay the money to get the music, whether they're buying it or whatever, they work hard, they're suffering. We're all suffering. We all have pain and dissatisfaction. And those people are taking their money and they're paying for relief. It's like a little vacation for them to go out to a club and hear music or a concert. And so the musician, the musician is in a service industry. They're performing something to relieve people's suffering, whether it's through distraction or uh, anthemic upliftment of the emotion or whatever's happening through the musical performance, you're in a service industry if you're a musician. And it completely transformed my, so I used to play, I remember playing at CBGB's gallery like the week before that. And you know, you hear people talking or the ice and the glass and you're like, hey, give me the attention. I'm singing my serious heartfelt songs here. And like, why are you? And then after that, it was like, I was like, no, I'm just here to like, I'm the jukebox, you guys have fun. And it completely like flipped a switch in me. Not that I got rid of my ego by any means, but it, it helped me transform my motivation and think, you know, yes, I want success for myself, but it's not, I also want to make the world a more beautiful place with this song. I also want to like give people joy. And it's like, you do that not by forgetting about self-expression and pathos. Some of the songs that I write are like, you know, nonfiction and some of the most successful, the two or three most successful songs that I've written have been, you know, really true, honest songs. But sometimes you also just have fun. And like, there's nothing wrong with, you know, entertaining people or expressing anger or expressing negative emotions. That doesn't mean you're, you're spreading negativity to make art, you know, about pain is not the same as causing pain. Um, so anyway, to answer the question, I don't, I wouldn't say it's non-aggressive so much. Uh, the approach to career is, you know, you can, you can go and say, hey, I'm, performing tonight and here's my name on the poster my name doesn't have to be the biggest name i'm not saying like put my name bigger than everyone else's and your name should be small that would be like the common kind of ego delusion but also i am one of 
the people here. So it's not like, you know, it's not saying that I don't exist and I'm nothing and you should step all over. Like my teacher always used to say, compassion does not mean being a doormat to other people. It's not that I don't exist. It's not that everyone else is important and I'm nothing. It's that I'm not more important than anyone else. We're all equally important. So that's a fine line to find that balance between self-esteem and self-aggrandizement. That, you know, the idea is not that we're, because that becomes an inverse kind of narcissism to become depressed and be like, I'm no good. Uh, you're still thinking about yourself. So it's like, we're not trying to create a bunch of people who are just like, you can walk all over me now. That doesn't help anyone. That doesn't help you or someone else. So it's finding that balanced way of being, you can even be competitive in a, you know, in a fun way, like sports and, you know, martial arts, it's interesting. That's a whole other thing that I've struggled with, like, because, you know, violence is a whole other aspect that is is problematic and troubling but in the business world or career world there's nothing wrong with going out there and winning and and wanting to win and wanting to succeed it's just the mentality thinking the delusion of thinking when i got all the success and wealth i'll be happy and i'll be a different person or what will i use this for what will i use my money for you know if you think you're going to make it to the top and feel better about yourself because you got external adulation that probably won't work yes it feels great to be plugged into the system and you know, you write a song and it's nice to like have it on the radio as opposed to just be like playing it for yourself. And there's, it's not necessarily all ego entertainment, but one of the questions that my teacher asked me early on, not me, he asked in a teaching, he said, asked us a room full of students. He said, what is the fantasy of your life? What is the, and I thought right away to be a rock star. That was what I thought I was going to do and be, and I was trying to, and he said, look at the fantasy of your life and look at how that fantasy drives you and what it costs you. Because Someone once came to him in one of his early talks, and after the talk, the guy, this was in Hong Kong, I think, the guy said, um, I liked what you said about Buddhism, and I'm kind of curious to, you know, maybe follow you, but I drive a Rolls Royce, and I'm very, you know, he's a multi-billionaire. Is that a problem? Do I have to? And he said, my teacher said to this, this guy, it's not a problem if you drive a Rolls Royce. It's a problem if the Rolls Royce drives you. So <laughs> it's not that we're preaching a, you know, a gospel of poverty. You can enjoy by whatever you have by all means but when you lose it and if you lose it and you become poor don't let that drive you crazy and don't let you know it's like don't get so excited when things go well don't get so depressed when things life is going to go up and down and try to be able to pivot and adapt and you know go with the flow and 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 enjoy things with a spirit of that without obsessive attachment and grasping excessive grasping like you know projecting this concrete like super serious intense i'm going to die at all costs but still, now here's the trick is to be able to work really hard with enthusiasm and passion without that extra little degree of delusion that concretizes everything as though it's like really, the technical term is reification. The reification of perishable aggregates is what they call it, which means to make something concrete out of something that's not concrete, something that's perishable. Everything is perishable. Everything is impermanent and fragile. And so our natural tendency is to have this bear trap on our heart feeling like, I've got to have that thing. So it's just, it's not like nothing matters and we're just going to fly. You know, he, another thing he used to say is like, you don't want to be a yuppie or a hippie. You want to be in the middle. Like there's another confusion that people think, oh, I'm, I'm into spirituality. So I'm dropping out. I'm not going to, I'm not into that man. Like I'm, that's the, I'm not going to play with the system. And he always used to say, no, you got to like make your bed, brush your teeth pay your bills. If you think you're going to succeed in the spiritual world and you can't succeed in the material world, you're fooling yourself. You, this is the simple baseline is to be able to function in ordinary conventional reality as a prerequisite. And then we're going to try, you know, you can't give that up thinking I'm going to make it spiritually because it's far more subtle and complex and the deceptions and challenges are more difficult. So first is, you know, make your bed, tidy up the space, brush your teeth, 
pay your bills, do your job, just be a normal, good person in the conventional social structure. And then we can aspire to something beyond that, of course. But um, the idea that it's like, I'm going to drop out because I think it's all jive and the system is jive and I'm just, I'm so pure and I'm going to go for like something more cool. That's also another kind of, you know, form of spiritual materialism or it's another kind of trap. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I'm not familiar. I'm sorry with, um, with the second book that you referenced with the hip hop book. Um, were both of your books interview compendiums or um, what was the, what was the hip hop book? No. So the first book inside the music is uh it's a compendium of essays and writing with quotes. So I did interview the people, but it's all, um, it's, it's, it's writing with quotes. Um, right, right. So, and the second book is called move the crowd, uh, move the crowd faces of the voices and faces of the hip hop nation, I think is the subtitle, but anyway, move the crowd is the title. And that was published by uh, MTV books, random house. There's an imprint of random house. And that one I did with my brother, Gregor Ehrlich. And that one, is all just quotes. It's, it's literally like the pull quotes. It's like the, the unifying factor is all interviews that we did. So it wasn't like we've said, we've got to have, you know, Tupac and Biggie in here. It was like, these are the people that we interviewed in our path, you know, it's, so it's more of a personal book. And then I have a third, um, I don't have a full book, but Dave Eggers did a, a, a kind of an anthology of a magazine that he did called Might Magazine. That was a, um, a really funny magazine that Dave Eggers did before he became a superstar. So I had a chapter in that. And now actually my brother and I are just finished doing um, not exactly ghostwriting. Cause I guess we're getting credited, but we sort of ghost ghost wrote this book with Peter Gabriel's daughter, Anna Gabriel, where it's uh, Anna Gabriel is a photographer mainly. And she photographed all these people's eyes, but the, you know, huge celebrities um, like Tom Petty and Paul Simon and, um, sting and just you know all these giant artists um and they're just close up their eyes and so we just worked with her on the text um but she's really the author of the book but that's still exciting that's going to be a fancy like coffee table book wow that's a beautiful conceit i like that that's yeah. that's really interesting yeah it's, it's it really is interesting it's been that's been a fun one um so so yeah those are the those are the books so far gotcha gotcha and um I guess that, yeah, and, and, and you sort of set up my, my next question, which was, do you have another long form work like that in you? Is there a, is there a topic you're looking to pursue or um, assuming you can talk about it? Um, is there, a, do you have a book in you right now? Yeah, I'm thinking, well, there's a couple, two different things I've been thinking about. One is, so I, I sort of wrote this blog about fatherhood called The Daddy Diaries, mm. and then that got turned into a TV pilot. Um, and I've sort of been contemplating, it's a sort of a humorous, but it's not, it's not, you know, it's a book, it's a book about how fatherhood has changed. Cause I think in the last like 20 years, you know, masculinity and maleness and fatherhood have really changed from our, like our parents, like our dads, I don't think my dad ever changed my diaper. Like it was just not, you know, and so dads now are much more hands-on. So I kind of think about maybe turning that into a book. And then the other, I've been thinking about taking my teacher's work and writing a, a book. So it wouldn't really be me writing it, but I would be writing it, but taking, I have, you know, I think I attended 40 retreats with him that were like week long retreats um, over the, you know, 30 years or so. I, st- I had 29 years I studied with him. So I'm thinking of doing a book about Buddhism um, for just trying to, you know, not that it's never been done before, but kind of for a younger pop culture kind of audience. Um, there are a lot of people are doing that now, but 
very authentically Tibetan Buddhist kind of approach to it would basically be his words just as sort of or his not my own ideas just taking just taking my all the notes that I have that I've compiled over the years and compiling them into one book um, yeah. I've been think, thinking about trying to do that because I've been I've been asked by the organization is called Jewelheart Jewelheart.org so they've been asking me and some other people to go back into the archives and transcribe and edit um, some of his talks and teachings and I'm doing that now and then I started thinking you know, I have so much, like, you know, imagine 40, 40 weeks of, <laughs> and that's just the, the retreats, then, you know, years of teachings. Um, I, so I have a huge body of information and just organizing it in a way. Yeah, so I was thinking, I was actually thinking the title of that book would be like, these are the words of my teacher, just to make it really clear, this is not my writing. Um, or it's not my, it's not my content. I would be more yeah. like, you know, the conduit for that. Um but an editor just because I've written in that kind of pop culture voice for MTV and for Rolling Stone. And I think I could, I think I could do something of, of use or service in terms of being able to translate these sometimes complex, abstruse ideas in ways that just to make them relevant to maybe a non-Buddhist audience or a younger audience, or just maybe even do a little bit of sense of humor, which I don't know how much exists that's funny about Buddhism and spirit. Maybe it does. I don't, I don't know, but I haven't seen that much. Yeah. Well, I, for, for people that aren't familiar either with the practice or who haven't worked with any kind of um, teacher or, or, or guide, um, what's the practical form that it takes? And specifically, I mean, you talked about studying with a teacher for, for the better part of 30 years with the same person. And you go on retreats, which I'm assuming um, there's a lot of sort of received information as well as the opportunity to have dialogue. But in those times in between, like, is it the kind of scenario where do you have a correspondence ongoing? Can you pick up the phone? Or is it you get something at a week-long retreat and then you go sit with it and you contemplate it and you live it and you apply it. And then you come back next time, you know, what, what, what does it mean to study with a teacher for that, that length of time? Um, good question. Excellent question. Um, so Tibetan Buddhism in, in, and I didn't know any of this, you know, I was actually raised when I was very little, I was think I was seven years old. My mother and father who are both PhDs in clinical psychology were writing an article about uh, meditating with the family and teaching the kids to meditate. So we spent about a month meditating every day when I was like seven years old <laughs> with my brother and sister. And, you know, and then it was a chore and I was like, you know, sit down and it was just basic mindfulness. But then about 10 years later, when I started doing martial arts, I was 17. There was another kind of meditation, which was much more like breath control. Um, and for some reason in America, most people, I don't know if this is true anymore, but for the most part, it seemed like most people thought meditation meant emptying your mind and not thinking. And people would think, oh, I, I, yeah, meditation is relaxing. Or I, people always say, I meditate. And I say, what, is, what do you mean by that? What are you doing with your mind when you meditate? And most people are like, you know, I'm emptying my mind or I'm controlling, I'm watching my breath. And for whatever reason, the word meditation in America has come to mean either spacing out and not thinking at all or focusing on your breath. And that's, that is part of meditation in general, that's much more of a Japanese Zen approach is to, you know, and, and there's meditation, of course, in, you know, in Christianity and in Islam, and there's a lot of different meditative traditions, Hinduism, a lot of Buddhism comes out of Hinduism. But in general, you could say, at least in the Buddhist world, meditation is divided into two things, which is single pointed focus on any object. And in Tibet, they say you can meditate 
from the yak, the tip of the yak's horn to the tip of the yak's tail. So it could be meditating on your breath, on a candlelight, on a mantra. And so it's basically bringing your mind like metal shards onto a magnet. You're trying to, you're trying to basically stabilize mental wandering and excitement. So the mind going down into depression or, or sleepiness or going up too up excited and this mental laxity is the term they use. So wandering, you're trying to, that's, that's single pointed focus or concentration. That's one part of meditation. It's called shamatha in Sanskrit. And then the other part of meditation is analytical meditation, which is using the mind to, like what we're doing right now, could be called meditation, to discern the truth of things. So looking at things like impermanence, suffering, where does suffering come from? Looking at things like the value of human life, looking at things like how does karma function, how to cause and effect. So looking at things like interdependence, emptiness, wisdom, compassion, looking at these kind of philosophical ideas that's analytical meditation. And then you bring them both together, single pointed focus with, you know, a good understanding of these ideas. And that is where we really get traction and, and transformation of the individual personality and, and make a difference in our daily lives. So the way in Tibetan Buddhism, the tradition usually has four steps. First, hearing. That could be reading, listening, or learning. So the first step is getting information. Second is analyzing, like having a discussion about it or contemplating it. Then the third step is mental focus. That's concentration. Once you have learned something, then we focus on it. And then the fourth is having internal development. So it's like biting off the food and digesting it and, you know, turning it into protein or something. Um, so the way these retreats would work, occasionally we would have um, silent retreats. So we would do usually four retreats a year, two week long ones in the winter and summer. And then in the, in the like um, around Memorial Day and Labor Day, I have like shorter ones. And then he would come to New York. He lived in, he was born in Tibet. He was actually born into the family of the 13th Dalai Lama. His uncle was the 13th Dalai Lama. The current Dalai Lama is the 14th. So he was essentially like born into a royal family. He was identified at the age of four as a reincarnate Lama, became a monk under, uh, he had 13,000 monks underneath him. He was the abbot of one of the biggest monasteries in Tibet. Um, in 1959, he fled to India, um, made it to America eventually. Um, I met him in New York at the Open Center in 1988, I think, or 88 or 89. And then... Um, so he, would, he was living in Ypsilanti, Michigan at the time, like outside of Detroit. And he would come here every few weeks or whatever. So we, when he wasn't here, he'd be teaching in different cities and we'd have VHS tapes FedEx to us at the time it was VHS. So every week we would meet in Tribeca, we had a little space and we would listen, learn, kind of focus on what the topic was. And it might be a year or two to go through one book or one text and learn these different um, texts and subject matters. Um, and then on the retreats, Generally, there'd be learning retreats. Sometimes there'd be practice retreats where there'd be silence and we'd be practicing the whole time, like say a mantra retreat where for 10 days we would just be all completing, let's say try to do 100,000 mantra recitations of a certain mantra over, over a 10 day period. But most often it'd be more like learning. So it'd be more like going to like college and studying philosophy and taking notes and learning and asking questions. And then Gellick Rinpoche was very unusual in that he was extremely accessible to us um, you know, and there'd be maybe a hundred or 200 people at these retreats, but you could, you know, like the people who are his senior students or knew him over a period of time would have his, his cell phone and you could call him and say like, I'm going through a difficult time right now. This happened and he would always be available to you um, to give advice or whatever, not for an hour long like conversation, but you know, he'd give you, give you a couple minutes of really valuable, you know, help. Um, but mostly what's different about Tibetan Buddhism is 
and I, again, this may be getting too into the weeds for, I don't know how, how much your listenership will care about this kind of thing, but in Buddhism in general, there's, there's different schools. So there's, there's Hinayana, Mahayana, and Vajrayana. Hinayana Buddhism is also called Theravadan Buddhism, which is what's common in like Cambodia, Thailand, Laos. It's basically fundamental Buddhism. The, the original teachings of the Buddha in the Pali language are called Theravadan. It's also translated as the way of the elders. They don't really, it's actually considered a little disrespectful to call it Hinayana because Yana means vehicle, Hina means smaller. So this mm-hmm. lesser vehicle doesn't mean that it's lesser, but it's more like the foundation, the basic foundation. And it's, it's a little more focuses on individual uh, self-control, cutting down negative emotions and gross level kind of like negative functioning, you know, morality, basic morality. And then Mahayana, Maha means bigger, the bigger vehicle that's developed in Japan and China that introduces the Bodhisattva ideal that we can become enlightened in order to help others. And then within that, sometimes a subset or whatever, Vajrayana is Tantric Buddhism which is what's practiced primarily in Tibet, Mongolia, a couple other places. This is what we studied. It has with it an initiation. So you enter into something and then you have a commitment. So as you take the initiation, most of the time you then have a commitment. So like I have, I think, I don't know, seven practices that I've taken. So every 24 hours, I have to do these every day, no matter what rain. So it's great in some ways because it forces you to meditate, but you know, it's a bit of a there's no day off ever. It's 360, and there's no way out. Once you take those entries, it's a lifelong commitment. So 365 days a year, I now have about a little bit under an hour of, of you know, committed. So the meditations I do, all, all of them basically have to do with wisdom and compassion. Um, those are kind of the two main wings of, of, of Buddhist practice. You're either trying to develop like a tender, kind of warm, sensitive, caring, nonviolent heart, or trying to develop uh, a mind that accurately perceives reality the understands the relative the way things exist in, in terms of uh, infinite relationality, the inter interdependence or dependent arising mm-hmm. is the, is the meaning of it. So trying to balance those two things. So I have this kind of like caring, warm, nonviolent approach, and also having this sort of like lucid, clear, cl- you know, clarity about the way we, fi- we, we exist. That's really what Buddhism comes down to is a, it's a critique of identity. It's like, what does the word I refer to? What do we feel when we say I, me, and mine? So it's trying to be more critical and look at like, we, we all feel something very solid behind that and it's trying to develop a sort of more realistic way of, wait a minute, I only exist in relationship to you and other things. I'm changing, these other things are changing. Everything is sort of impermanent and um, interdependent. So what with the practice is, and there's, everything is super systematic in Buddhism. There's something called the Lam Rim, which means stages on the path. So the first, it's like a, it's like a schematic diagram for your stereo or something. Or it would be like if you took everything that existed about music, let's say, because music is your, is your field of expertise. If, you, if there was an encyclopedia that was a schematic category or a table of contents and, and it went from the beginning, like, you know, a whole note, the note middle C down to Schopenhauer and whatever the most complicated Duke Ellington you know, Haydn, whatever you want. It could go the most complicated music to Frank Zappa, like, and it basically went back to folk music. And that's what every day we go through this Lam Rim. And the Lam Rim is a schematic diagram of everything the Buddha taught. So whatever you learn, you can know where you are, where you are in your own personal development, ways of measuring. So for example, taking concentration as an example, most people would say, concentration, I get it. Either I'm, I have concentration or I don't, right? Right. But in Buddhism, there's nine different levels. They've broken down of concentration, which begins the first level is you hold the object with your mind and you lose it. Then you hold it and you lose it, but you hold it a little longer. 
you get to the fourth level and that's called patching the gaps. Then you're no longer hold, losing it, but you're holding it with subtle gr sinking then gross sinking then subtle excitation. Anyway, so there's antidotes to each of those different levels. When you've reached the ninth level, that doesn't mean you're enlightened. That means you've got single pointed focus. That means you can hold your mind on whatever object you want for up to four hours without any wavering. Um, that's mm. like having a tool. I always say that's like someone gave you a Black & Decker drill. Now, are you going to spend the rest of your life going zzz with the drill? Or then you start using the drill. What are we going to do with the drill? We're not going to build anything. We're going to disassemble the sort of delusional prison that we built around ourselves so that we can just see reality. Because we're not creating anything in Buddhism. Otherwise, it would be unstable. All we're doing is kind of revealing reality as it exists. We're trying to peel away the onions of delusion. And in order to do that, we need to have single point of good focus because if you don't have great focus, you can't really get it. Even in conventional business, you can't get anything done without concentration, right? A great athlete is in the zone and has great focus. So, so that, to answer your question, what we do, we learn and then we try to practice with focus, with great focus. Um, and we try to, you know, slowly liberate ourselves from our, our own addictions to negative emotions. So first is acknowledging that we are stuck, that we're addicted in these cycles of self-created misery and then trying to realize that even our joyful moments aren't really true joy, that we're not really free. We don't really know what real happiness is, but there is a possibility of real happiness. And then we try to sort of stop, you know, punching ourselves in the face. <laughs> That's essentially <laughs> how to stop causing our own misery. And then actually, you know, to be able to help others too, to realize that we're not alone in this canoe sinking. We're actually, we're connected with others. We're all suffering together and we can't really make it. We won't have the inspiration if all we do is care about our own happiness. But if we think, my God, there's this like almost messianic possibility of like helping everyone. I can make the world better for everyone. And, um, and that motivates us to, you know, to, to do practice and do, and do it joyfully and, and to be able to persevere through, you know, it's not the easiest thing in the world to become free. So I've been practicing every day for, you know, 30 years. And um, I can't say that I have much to show for it. I mean, I certainly still have plenty of problems in terms of, you know, just ordinary human frailties and flaws and, you know, ego and aggression and stupidity and whatever. But I will say that I think I'm better, you know, I, I think at least I, I can say I put a drop, a drop of water in the bucket every day. So, you know, like I'm, that's the one thing that, the one great thing about this Vajrayana approach, the commitment and the discipline is when you commit to do something every day, I mean, imagine it just on a conventional level. If you said every day, I'm going to do an hour of exercise, 365 days a year, you know, you'd get somewhere. You might not be Michael Jordan, but if you said, I'm going to play basketball every day for every day for the rest of my life, I'm going to play it for an hour a day. By the time you died, you'd be pretty good at basketball. You, you might not be on the NBA, but like you'd be better than 90% of people. So yeah. it's like, you know, it's how it's just get, that forces you to have a certain kind of discipline. Now, some days I'm not doing it with hundred percent focus. Some days I'm like, but I have no choice. I've, I've made a commitment. So that's, that's a great, well, sometimes it's a burden, but you know, there are definitely days, especially when you become a parent and you're like, you know, you haven't slept and the kid's like, daddy, play with me. And I'm like, Oh God, I've got to be like recite. So the, the meditation we do is not just sitting there watching our breath. That's part of, there is breath work. And, but there, a lot of it is more like reciting these um, scripts that are called sadhanas. They're like visualizations. And essentially what they are is basically the most positive thing you could ever imagine. It's basically saying like, okay, I'm in this crystal palace. Everything, every sound I hear is a beautiful sound. Every breath I take is like, I'm inhaling, you know, my body's just like, 
every cell of my body is dancing with orgasmic bliss that's radiating out for me. It's touching all beings. Everyone is feeling super joyful. It's kind of like that, you know, I'm simplifying a bit and there's process and transformation and a lot of, you know, rules and regulations and discipline to it. But essentially it's, it's a super positive, like the most positive thing. So there's that thing that's become popular in the music and Hollywood world of the secret. The secret is basically taking that, but it's taking away the context of compassion and emptiness and wisdom. But it's basically saying like, have a vision board for where you want to be. Take that goal you want as your path. So instead of thinking, I'm going to work for 30 years and get there, say, I'm going to imagine how I feel when I win that Grammy. And then I'm going to start feeling that way right now. And then I'm going to behave differently. But instead of thinking about, you know, getting a Rolls Royce and a Grammy, instead it's, I'm going to think, how would I feel if I was fully enlightened right now? How would I feel if I had no more aggression and no more fear, no more anxiety? I'm going to conjure that imaginatively at first every day for a long time, every day with focus. And I'm going to slowly through epigenetics transform my DNA, you know, and science is now kind of beginning to show that and actually target the parts of the brain that they show these monks protective Tibetan Buddhist monks, what happens to your brain, the part of your brain associated with happiness and serenity is activating more. Like we're actually, you know, the funny thing is, I know I'm going off totally on a tangent, but that's okay. But the thing that every thing, every single living thing wants and every person wants is to be happy. And everything we do is to be happy. So everything we do from, you know, going to war, whatever, taking drugs, all the stuff we do is to be happy. All these pills and pharmaceuticals with side effects, antidepressant, but the secret of happiness is known and it's been proven how to do it. Like if you sit down with the right motivation and do these meditative practices, it will make you feel better. <laughs> and it's not like it's, you're going to be happy forever. It's not, but if you do, I mean, if you look at the Dalai Lama or whatever, the examples of people who we can see that it works, that you, you know, you will not freak out as much. You'll feel happier. You'll feel more peaceful. Um, you will get some results. It's not easy because it's like kind of exercise. It's like, well, it's not, a, it's not bariat, whatever it's called, surgery to get rid of your, you know, you have to work out. So it's, that's the thing is that you have to do the work. And that's, you know, that's not always easy for people. It's not always right. easy. But, <laughs> right. But it's right. funny, like when I, when I was standing in line just now for two hours and 15 minutes waiting to vote, I felt a little embarrassed because it's not part of our culture. But I was like, I'm going to stand here. I was doing chin-ups on the scaffolding and I was like, you know, shadow boxing and moving and stretching. And I'm like... I'm not going to just stand here for two hours. <laughs> so I look like I have to use this time a little bit. And to, go home stiff and sore. And, <laughs> yeah, and was, you know, I wish we lived in a society where everyone was like, that's cool. Like in the airport, I'm always like, you know, doing yoga in the airport. And I'm like, I know people are going to stare at me and think I'm a jerk, but why do we not live in a society where it's like, Hey, why do we not have a gym in the airport? Like, why do we not have free, it, you know, there's a lot of bars here. Why do we not have like, why don't they put stationary bicycles in the airport? Anyway, they are starting to actually put yoga rooms and, and, uh, meditation rooms and some of them, but yeah, I've started, I've started to hear about that myself. I've, I've actually talked to people who have wanted to go on that um, to sort of uh, to take that on, to try to get that, to get that done. Um, Dimitri, thank you for, uh, for spending so much time with me and, and for sharing all this stuff. And if you had any doubts as to whether or not the folks listening to this want to hear this, I, I assure you that you mentioned tangents. My whole podcast is a tangent. <laughs> My whole life is a tangent. <laughs> so thank you for, uh, for sharing with us. Thank you so much, Dimitri Ehrlich. Thanks to Ant Taylor and the entire team at Light. If you want to learn more about Light, visit light.com. That's L-Y-T-E dot com. 
And thank you for listening to Spotlight On. We're available from Apple, Spotify, Amazon, and most anywhere else podcasts can be had. Please keep your feedback coming. Email me at lp at light.com. Thanks so much. Be safe and stay in touch. Mm-hmm.